And then let's all take our Bibles again, please, and we're going to go to John 16. <coughs> and we're doing verses, probably verses 1 to 7, uh, maybe 1 to 15, but I doubt we'll get that far. We'll do that next week. So John 16, verses 1 to 7 in particular. And I want you to get the context of what this section is, all right? Because we are here right now in the last night of the life of the Lord Jesus. This is the night of his betrayal. And at this stage, you know, all the disciples and his followers there, they are in a state of real anxiety, actually. There's, there's fear, there's confusion, there's dismay, there's doubts. It's really dawning on them that he is actually going away. He's actually going to leave them, and he really is going to die. I mean, they followed him for some three solid years, and... He's taught them, he's guided them, he's guarded them, he's been with them, he has done mighty works, he has preached a mighty word, and the multitudes have followed him, etc., etc. They know that he is the promised Messiah, he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And they've got every hope that at this time he will actually restore the kingdom to Israel. That's what they're thinking. Put down the Roman army and establish Jerusalem as the center of the earth and rule and reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. But in the last six months of being with him, there has come that subtle but then startling and deliberate change in his ministry and what he has had to say to them. He told them very, very plainly that uh, he would actually go to Jerusalem and he would tell them that there he was actually going to die. And he explained to them in the last six months what lay ahead in his death and rejection and suffering. And he made it very clear to them that to actually be a disciple, to be a follower of his, would be an extremely costly thing. Indeed, if any man desire to come after me, he says, he's got to deny himself, he's got to take up his cross daily, and he's got to follow me. He says, what it will be is a journey of hardship. It'll be a journey of persecution. It'll be a pathway of suffering. And now, as they've listened to that for six months, they had not really grasped it or understood it because they thought, this could never happen to you, Lord. That's what Peter says. No way is it could ever this happen to you. But as they are approaching now this final, the final hours, the harsh reality of what lies ahead is, as it were, kicking in. And they are overwhelmed with sorrow, it says in verse 6. He is losing them. Leaving them, I should say. He is leaving them. And all they can see is that they are actually losing him. And really, that makes everything look so black. Furthermore, as we've discovered going through this last night's ministry... It was a long night of ministry. He's already told them of the kind of world that he's going to leave them in and what to expect in the world when he's away. And he says you can expect hostility, you can expect hate, you can expect rejection, you can expect persecution. And he makes it clear that it would be a very costly journey to come and to continue to follow him. The Lord Jesus never pulled any punches. He never made it sound as though this being a Christian thing was only all merriment and happiness and cartwheels in the streets and hallelujahs every morning. No, it's not like that. You're in a battle. 
and there's an enemy in the land and the powers of darkness are all around us and Satan will do what he wants to do but the hand of God is with us and protects us. So he makes it very clear the kind of world they would be left in, the terms of the discipleship, the one that follows him and then he has taught them as we've gone through their role in such a world while he is away and the role in the world for the Christian, for them and for us is to be those who bear fruit, all right? Who demonstrate in this dark world that we are new creatures in life, in, in new creatures. We have a new life, and it's in Christ. We, have, we are part of the vine. We're just a branch drawing from that life, and consequently showing in the world by the fruit in our lives that we are part of him, we belong to him, and we spend our life shining constantly for him and bringing forth fruit to God. Now, from verse 3, from this section here, what we're going to look at today is that he then just reveals to them that even though it seems so hopeless, far from it, his going from them would mean they would actually be better off. Don't know if you've ever pondered that. We are better off today with Christ in heaven than if he were here still, as it were, sitting in our midst and we were sitting at his feet and listening to his word. Because there's something more glorious in a Christ above than there is in a Lord Jesus Christ, the Nazarene carpenter's son, in the weakness of humanity, in the constraints of humanity, living amongst them side by side. And the fact is, they are going to be actually be better off with him gone, wonderfully better off. Now that's our study this morning in John chapter 16. Because the blessings that would come to them have continued on and come to us. Now let's read it together. John 16 and verse 1. <clears throat> Here it is. Verse 1. These things have I spoken to you that you should not be offended. At this stage, the Lord has probably been talking to them for a very long time. And he says, I've been explaining to you in this my last message for you all that lies ahead, so that you should not be offended or stumbled. You should have a clear understanding of what it means to be a disciple. We need to have that, a clear understanding of what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in a world of darkness, and its ruler is none less than Satan himself. Now he says, get, those clear, get that clear understanding, because in verse 2, they shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time comes when whosoever kills you will think that he does God service. I mean, how utterly illogical is that? How incredible is that? That someone who persecutes a Christian and wants them to be destroyed will actually think they are doing it as a religious service. Because that's what we're talking about. Persecution with religious fervor. With a, a passion of hate 
that goes deeper than the logical. I mean, it's illogical to be persecuting Christians in today's world. Quite illogical. You only need to look at the history of what Christianity has brought to the world and to society. The benefits, the betterments. I mean, we basically, for all our faults, we are upright citizens who are trying to do the right thing and respect authority and do good and show love in the community. And yet, with a passion that's religious in its fervor, they would turn and hate, and not just hate, they would destroy, indeed they would kill, and then think that they are doing God a service. You see, this movement of hate, it goes much deeper than the mere logical. It's illogical. You could argue black and white, pink and blue, whatever. You will always come out in a logical argument that to retain Christians in the community and leave them alone is the best thing you could do. But you see, we're not talking about this. We're talking about a passion that goes past the logical. It goes deep into the spiritual, into that spiritual world of darkness. Because you see, the spirit that rules in the world is actually the spirit of Antichrist. When John writes his epistle, the first epistle, he talks about that spirit that's moving in the world already, he says, there's many an Antichrist. Now, and by the way, just as a tip, as I go through, John's first epistle is a commentary on the upper room ministry of the Lord Jesus, John 13 to John 17. It's a commentary. All of, most of his material he draws from there. It's a direct, 35 direct references from these chapters. So I just dropped that for those of you who want to study the scriptures and maybe get a slightly better understanding of John's epistle, which is quite staccato in the way it's written and not always easy to read. But that's just in passing. John brings out that it's the spirit of Antichrist that is there in the world. And you see, when you talk about Antichrist, you're not just talking about against Christ. It's more than that. Sure, it's against Christ. They hated him. They rejected him. They crucified him. And they were glad when they did it. Right. Anti against Christ. But the notion of Antichrist is that that individual who's the seed of all of that actually wants to take Christ's place and be worshipped instead of him you see so as that spirit moves in the world it does have all the passion of a religious fervor of a a worshipping of the darkness of this world and the raising up of man not in no longer in the image of God but in the image of sin and all it's done and all it's brokenness and all it's filth and all it's passion and they say let me be who I am and the truth is who you really are without Christ and salvation and being made a new creature in Christ what are you but you're black with sin full of passion anger hate lust self I will worship myself And the ruler of this world says, and I will create a new religion in which you'll all be like gods, but when it's all said and done, you'll end up worshipping me and being under my power. So you see now why the Lord says what they'll do is have that passion, that religious fervour. Verse 3. These things will they do unto you. Why? Because they have not known the Father nor me. Now just stop there. You imagine yourself, I mean, from our point of view, it's wonderful to, in a sense, we have this secret within all our breasts that despite all that happens and all that goes on and all that Satan does, we are the Lord's, O joy beyond expression. 
But look, you imagine living in this world and you actually don't know the Lord. You imagine living in the chaos of today, the uncertainty of today, and to not know even where you came from, to not know where you're going, and to actually not know who you are. To have no guideline, no compass, no future, no hope. To have no rock to rest upon. To have no shelter to keep you, no anchor, no shepherd, no guide. That's why they're doing it, he says, because they don't know the Father, they don't know God, and they don't know me. Now look, if you can get that in your mind, you can look out at the, at the world and the most, is it were, the most evil of behaviour, the most anti-Christian and anti-God arrangement, or whatever it is, whatever activity of Satan, or the people involved, and instead of really hating them and wishing they were dead, you know, like taking up the old crusader's sword and going out to slay the Turks and to shed the blood in the name of God... It's not that. You actually look at people and you think, you have compassion. And you look at them and you think, there but for the grace of God, go I. I mean, next time you see that vile thing and that vile man, that vile woman, next time you sense and experience that persecution or that hate, or the next time they do you wrong and they betray you and they stab you, just remember, it's because they don't know the Lord. And say, but for the grace of God, there go I. It'll give you the secret to showing mercy. See, when you show mercy, you withhold what people deserve. Mercy has the idea of compassion in it. And you look at that person and you say, look, I'll pray for that person. I could be just like him. You say, oh, no, I don't. Yes! Sorry, in your sinful heart, unregenerate, never born again, there lies the fruit of every evil and the possibility for the vilest of evil. For Satan can use those people, that kind of person, without the Spirit of God within them. So it brings the thought of compassion. You say that. They don't know the Father nor me. Now look at verse 4. And in verse 4, what do we have here? Verse 4 and 5 and 6, all right? But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, they, just a second, I'm just trying to arrange something better here. There you go. But when thing, but these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, you might remember I told you of them. And these things I said not to you at the beginning, because I was with you. You see, you didn't need to hear and to understand. But now... And please notice this verse. I go my way to him that sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? Whither goest thou? I've noticed that. I pondered a long time, whatever did the Lord mean by drawing attention to that? He says, but because I have said these things, sorrow has filled your heart. In other words, he says, now look, there you are overwhelmed with the message of what you've heard, the news you've heard. And he said, you know, you can imagine them. You're asking many questions. You're sort of saying, why is ever this happening? You know, I mean, whatever shall we do? I mean, how shall we ever cope? 
Mrs. You're asking many questions, but none of you yet have asked the right question, which will give you the key to victory, understanding, peace, joy, and hope. Because he said, what you haven't asked, what you have been asking, are the whys and the whats and the hows. What you should have been asking is the where. All right? None of you have asked me, where are you going? If you can understand the answer to that and the fullness of the blessing and the glory of that, of where he was actually going. They thought Jerusalem, death, the grave, over. But he says, if you'd ask me where I am going, I can tell you now, not only will you have an understanding, but your despair will turn into hope. Your sorrow will be transformed into joy because what I'm doing, he says, I am going to him that sent me. Can you not get the sense of control here? That over and above all there is a God who has sent his son into the world. And he has come to accomplish the work, the perfect work of redemption and salvation. And when he has finished that work, he goes back to the one who sent him. Number one, everything under the hand and under the control of God. This is the one, he says, that I'm going to. This is the one who will raise me from the dead. This is the one who will receive me up into glory. This is the one who actually originated the whole scheme and plan of redemption. He was the God of Genesis 3 after the fall. This is the one who made the promise that he would send the seed of the woman into the world in order to accomplish our salvation and to destroy the works of the devil, to crush him under his heel. This is the one who has sent the prophets, God the sender of the prophets, into the world to predict his coming, to, dis- to give details of his coming. This is he of whom it says, when the fullness of time was come, God. Please never forget God. In every situation of despair and distress, never forget God. Oh, you sorrowful disciples, 11 simple men, overwhelmed with what lies ahead, I'm going back to God. He sent me. He's in control. He is over all. He always was and he ever will be. I'm sending you, I'm going back to the God who made the prophet, the promise, the God who sent the prophets and the God who sent his son into the world. If you don't understand what's really going on, he says, you will despair and you will be overwhelmed. He says, I'm going to my father. He sits at the very highest point in heaven, ruling over all. And what you don't realise and what you must realise is I am actually going to up there to be with him and to sit down on that very same throne, the throne of God. And from up there, far from being in weakness down here with you now, I will be able to rule in power and in great glory. You heard me pray, didn't you, in the previous uh, part of the evening? You'll find it in John 13 there. Father, Glorify your son. Well, he says, I'm going up there in order to be glorified. No, not to be just crucified, but ultimately to be glorified. Oh, yes, I am going to die. Yes. But that is not the end of the mission. 
He is going to be buried. He's going to be raised again. He's going to ascend up on high and he's going to sit down at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. He goes into death and he goes through death and he rises again with mighty power and glory, raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, the one who actually sent him into the world. And then from the resurrection, he'll go up and indeed and he will be received up into glory. And when he arrives there, he will sit down in glory. He will go out from the grave. He will go up from the earth. He will go out into heaven. And finally, he will up, he will sit up there in the throne. God over all, blessed forever. Look, please, he's on the throne. Get it clear, he's on the throne. Satan's doing what he will. Right, evil seems to be triumphing at times. God is still on the throne. And he will remember his own. Though troubles distress us and trials oppress us, He'll never leave us alone, for God is still on the throne. It's beautiful, isn't it? Ask the right question. <laughs> Ask the right question. Not why, not how, not whatever, but where are you going? He's going through death. He's going to ascend up on high. We quoted it this morning. He's going to lead captivity captive. The whole system that has captivated men... The whole sin system and the, the originator of it, the devil himself and all of his angels and his cohorts and his servants and the, the whole devilish system of captivity, he's, the Lord's going to captivate the whole thing. He's going to bring it to destruction. He's going to send up on high himself. And what's he going to do? He's going to bring and give many gifts to men. We've got so many gifts. Always in trouble, give thanks for the gifts. That's the point of it. And at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens, he will bring in all the fullness of the kingdom of God. See, what he's, what he's portraying here is that no longer will I be limited, he says, by my state that I am currently in. He left all that because he loved us. He left all that because he was going to redeem us. He left all that because he was going to restore in us the image of God and make us like himself. And in love he came down... And he was found in fashion as a man, and he took upon himself the form of a servant, the lowly, humbled Jesus. But he says, when I move from this state onto glory, I will bring in a situation whereby every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to God the Father's glory. For a Christian, it's going to happen one day. And praise the Lord, we'll all be there. And we'll all say, Amen. There it is. <laughs> so it's much better, he says, if I go away. You know, he says some incredible things. In chapter 14, verse 12, when he introduces the benefits of his going away, and I'll come to that in a minute, he, he says that actually the works that I've been doing, right, he actually says you're going to do those works also. Point number one. But that's not the end of it. He then says greater works than these. Why? Because I go to the Father. None of you have been asking me where I'm going. I'm going to him that sent me. I'm going to the Father. You see, the work that he'd been doing, what had he been doing? He'd been declaring the truth of the kingdom of God. That's how he preached the king. That's how he started his ministry. Preaching the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the rule of God, the king, Christ himself, who was amongst them. Right? Now he says, 
you will continue to do the work that I have been doing here. And that's right. That's what they were there for. They were there to declare the truth of the gospel of the kingdom of God. That's what we are here for. But he says, you will do that work that I am doing, but you will do it in a greater way. This is magnificent. He said, I was just, I have become a man and humbled and limited and I've preached in Jerusalem and I've preached in Samaria and I've gone down to Jericho and I've been out to Perea and I spent all those years as the stranger of Galilee preaching the glorious gospel of the kingdom, calling sinners to repentance. But he says, when I am gone, I will be up there in power. And he actually says in the same part of chapter 14 and verse 13, and whatsoever you ask of me, I will give you. Now keep it in context, because people use that to buy a new Mercedes. It doesn't work, sorry. It's a good idea, but it just doesn't work, because it's not what we're talking about. He says, when you're left here doing the work of the spread of the kingdom of God and you need what you haven't got the strength, the power, the wisdom, the protection and the the anointing of the Holy Spirit to preach the word you ask of me and up there no longer straightened, constricted or restrained you get it? up there I will give you all things because all things that the Father has are mine And all the resources of heaven are at my disposal. All the power of God is within me. And all the right to rule and reign is absolutely mine. That's why you can ask and he'll give you, but not a Mercedes, all right? But he might give you the grace to spread the gospel. And he might give you the joy of seeing someone saved. And he might give you the protection you need when Satan attacks you. He may deliver you and he will deliver you from evil. He will enable you by his grace to live in a hostile world in the midst of every kind of persecution, disappointment, despite our weakness. He will enable us always to live for God. Now, once they could get that, you've got to say, look, come on, this has to calm their fears, doesn't it? Enable them to face a hostile world and to live in it fruitful for God. That's what they needed for the next day of the crucifixion. That's what they needed for tomorrow. Fellow Christian, this truth and an understanding of who Jesus is and where he is and the fact that it's better that he's gone up there by far, this is what we need to face tomorrow. Many things about tomorrow... I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow and I know who holds my hand. Take heart, fellow Christian. Do not be discouraged. Be an overcomer. And in the name of the Lord, move on in your faith. Move on in your faith. You know Christ on the throne, the Holy Spirit down here dwelling within us, linking us with him up there making his presence to us even now while he seems to be away, making his presence to us and within us so real that it's actually better and more real than if he had literally stayed with them. That's huge. In speaking on that, and I won't go back to it, in John 14, where he talks in the... uh, When he's gone up there, 
through the presence of the Holy Spirit, he says, I'll come down and I'll make my abode with you. And he says, I will be in you. And the Father himself will come down and make his dwelling place, his abode in you, and he will be with you. And he says, you won't feel like orphans. And I used to say, it'll be just as if he'd never left them. That's wrong, you know. I said that a few weeks ago. You should have picked me up. It's wrong. It won't be just as if he never left them. It'll be more real to them in his power and strength and glory than it ever could have been if he'd ever stayed with them. Because they are now embracing not the meek and lowly Jesus, but this same Jesus whom you crucified, the one who's been made Lord and Christ. And the relationship is so real, it's within you. You get that? Within you. You are in Christ, drawing from his life. That's the branch and the vine. You get it? In John 15. And then he is within you. There's this incredible link between you and the Lord. This incredible bond. This shared life. This strength that you can draw from him in all our weakness as we're waiting for that final day when the victory will stand before him and we'll see him as he is. You see, when you grip these truths, you'll find out that you've actually got a faith with what? overcomes the world. This is what overcomes the world. Even our faith, our faith. Fellow Christian, take heart this morning. Ask the right question. Ask the right question. Verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient. Now that's important. It is better for you. That's the word there. Very straight. There's no, no qualification, no ifs or buts. It's better for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter, the comforter, I love that phrase, the Holy Spirit, the helper, some versions would give it, is something more warm and near and reassuring and soothing, isn't there? It's like a balm for your soul to think that he has sent a, a, another comforter. He says, if I don't go, he will not come. But if I do go, I will send him to you. Yes, he said, this is the real key to now understanding the benefit that will come when I go away. For me to go away, the benefit will come to you because of the place I'm now going to and the power that I have. But you, it would mean nothing to you if the Holy Spirit never came and made all the blessings in Christ yours. You see? If the Holy Spirit didn't come down here and, and convict you of sin and bring you to your knees and made you cry out for salvation and trust in Christ alone and be, be born into him, it would have all been pointless and nothing. But the Holy Spirit has been sent. That one who is a helper, that's the meaning there, the paraclete, comforter, helper, someone who draws alongside, someone who takes up your cause and your case, someone who enables you and represents for you, even prays for us when we don't know how to pray with what's fitting. Have you ever been in that situation where you get on your knees to pray and, and you say, I don't even know how to pray, I just know I am lost, I'm distressed, I am... And you know the Holy Spirit actually prays for you. That, that, that's a comfort. That's a comfort. It's beautiful. The comforter. I'm almost, I don't want to call it a helper. Yet it is, he is the helper, of course he is, he's the paraclete, he draws alongside, he advocates our situation, he prays on our behalf from the heaven, from earth. And there's an advocate in heaven, we won't go into that, we'll just dwell here. Now it says here, I will send you, it says, another comforter. 
All right, if I tell you the truth, it's expedient for you that I go away. If I go not away, the comforter will not come. Now, back in chapter 14, he says, I'll send you another comforter. Now, the word another there means another one like myself. That's really the, the meaning. It's joining two likes together. And what it's saying is, he's saying is, number one, it's of the same kind. It's God in his presence through his spirit actually sent to you personally and to the world to do a mighty work and to enable you to continue the work that I began in the preaching of the gospel. And he will stay with you forever. That is, he will never go away and he will bring all that reality of the relationship we have with me on the throne in my power, apparently so far away from you, but not at all, for I am both in you, and you are in me, and I am with you constantly and totally. May I just repeat something I said the other week? It's not just that he's saying, the Lord's not just saying, look, I'll be there, I'll be there in front of you. Well, of course he's... Um, in front of us, isn't he the captain of our salvation? But it's not just in front of us. And you say, well, he didn't say, well, I'll be there right, right beside you. He didn't just say that. Well, of course he's beside us. The angel of the Lord camps round about them that fear him. Want to remember that sometime. Don't forget that. And it's not just that he's behind you to protect you, as it were, from attack. He is behind us and he does protect us from attack. And it's not just that he's underneath you, holding you up. Of course he's underneath us. Underneath you the everlasting arms but he's actually in you all of that plus that you get the idea displayed in all those per, those pictures and those sayings of where he is but the whole thing is that he's there in an abiding sense of which you'll be kept it's much better you know that he's gone away Paul says to some of those Christians doesn't he you used to know Jesus Christ after the flesh you get it you live he live with you but you don't know him like that any longer it's something more blessed and that joy of knowing him is ours 2,000 years later because he has sent the Holy Spirit to earth. We will open up a bit, not just this week, but next week particularly, just a bit more about the work of the Holy Spirit because it's been completely misrepresented and probably poorly understood. All right? So we'll mention that as we go through. But let's have a look. Verse 8. When he has come... He will reprove the world. Now, some of your versions will say convict the world. And I might add, that's the right word. <laughs> All right? It is actually. It's convict. The work of the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Just stop there. This word that's used here, convict, convict, let's get the understanding of this. Because, you see, it's very important when the Holy Spirit is at work on this earth, whether it be in the world in general, in society in general, whether it be in the heart of an individual, doesn't matter. Any work that is a work of God through the Holy Spirit will always be a work that involves and has at the forefront the work of the conviction of sin. If there's a mighty work going on, and there's not a conviction of sin as its root and in the forefront of the activity, it is not a work of the Holy Spirit of God. 
Convict is a very strong word. It's, it's like a cutting word. You, know, you can almost feel it like a knife go through you when you've been convicted. You know, you've ever done the, cut the bread or done the carving of the meat and the knife sort of went through your finger and oh, there's a pain in it. Oh, you feel it, you know. You know oh. See, it's a cutting word. It, it, it cuts right through every single barrier, sharper than a two-edged sword, using the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It goes right through every barrier and every opposition. It goes through every sort of part of the psyche, every barrier the mind puts up. It's a word convict. It cuts right into the heart and right into the soul of a sinner. And it produces guilt. And from that guilt there comes repentance. And from repentance there comes that cry, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And such a cry brings the answer of salvation. I tell you, there is no sinner that has ever cried for salvation in repentance that hasn't received it. Because that work of conviction of sin that produced the repentance is a work of God. And God doesn't do a half work. He always finishes his work. And the Lord Jesus has never turned anybody away, ready ever to receive. And listen to the cry of the repentant sinner. You see, what happens is this created in the heart of a person, and you know what I mean, because you must relate to this. Once upon a time, you couldn't care less. Sin you liked. You rejoiced in it. And you had fellow delight in those that sinned. They were your companions. That was your joy, that was your life, and you never felt it a bit. But suddenly you've got that sense of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Right, let me repeat it again. Let me go over this again so you get the point in your mind. When the Holy Spirit moves, he moves firstly in the conviction of sin. The hallmark of the work of God is that. It's not, you see, we've dwelt on Holy Spirit's at work. Whoa, miracles. You know, big show. I mean, circus performance. I mean, prosperity going everywhere. Mercedes, no, let's, let's get a McLaren. So we could go on. Wonderful events like magic tricks, strobe lights and noise. A wonderful happening that makes me feel good it exalts self it boosts my ego but you know when God is at work it's not all about me and how wonderful I am it's all about him and what a saviour he is and what a God he is what a merciful God he is you see it's a powerful work alright but it's not to exalt me it's to lift him up and so I see him with the eye of faith the sinner's only saviour and I have such a low view of myself. And I have a high view of God. I have a serious view of sin. And I cry out again, God be merciful to me, the sinner. You know, you do that when you get saved. But I tell you what, you do it over and over, don't you? Because you realise sin and how it is against God, it's hateful to God, it's the work of the devil in your life. And you spend every day, every day, don't you, at the end of every day, you confess your sins. You do. And you ask for the forgiveness of those sins. Not so that you won't go to hell, but so that you are right with God in your relationship with him. That's why you do it. Okay? So it's, it is a powerful work. It is a wonderful work. It's a spectacular work. It's so wonderful because it produces such wonderful results. That's why. You can't say it's not wonderful, spectacular and magnificent, but it is. 
Because what you see is a soul seeking Christ, the only saviour of sinners. Men and women, once captives of sin, convicted of their sin, calling on God for mercy, and finding it in the salvation of Christ. I tell you, there's nothing more wonderful than to see somebody truly trust the Lord and be saved. It just, you know, you go to work, you may be, and you pull off a good bargain, and you have a good day, and you make a good money, and you come home, and everything was fine. But you, there you go to work, and you see somebody saved. You see a sinner saved by the grace of God. It thrills you. I remember as children, we used to sing that hymn, Christ is the saviour of sinners. Christ is the saviour for me. Long I was lost in sin's darkness, but now by his grace I am free. Saviour of sinners, saviour of sinners like me. Once I was lost in sin's darkness, now by his grace I am free. This is the work of the Holy Spirit of God. This is the story of the Pharisee and the publican, the two men that went up to the temple to pray. Do you remember them? Two men went up there to pray. The Pharisee, grand man. Good works, prayers, fastings. One of the doyens of the religion, religious leaders in the hierarchy of the day. And he stood and he prayed with God. He doesn't say that. He prayed with himself, it says. Because he never got past the ceiling, you know. <laughs> you pray fully yourself and it'll just get stuck in the paint. It will. It won't go any further. Because God the Spirit alone could carry that prayer above through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It won't happen. It's all about you, what happened. And he was so pleased with himself because he said, look, I'm not a thief, I'm not an unjust person, I'm not an adulterer, I'm not even like, I'm not like other men, I'm not even like this poor old other man that's come up to the temple to pray who happens to be one of those sinful social rejects, a, a, far, a tax gatherer. He stands there, a true work of religion full of himself. Right, the next man to turn to pray and he just stays where he is, he can't lift his eyes up to heaven and just remember in those days they prayed that they looked upwards to heaven but he's cast and he's beating on his breast what's he say? God be merciful to me the sinner God be merciful and what does it say? He went down to his house right with God he went down to his house justified this is what it's all about surely if you're a say you're a Christian in this room today you must relate to something I've said and I've had an experience, a life-changing experience when by the grace of God your sin was shown to you and the Saviour was revealed and your cry for mercy was answered and you, a sinner, saved by grace, were justified by the grace of God. Let me illustrate a couple of things. Allow me to tell a story the children will get it, and I want it if it's only for their sake. I want you to tell you that something that's happened to me several times, two instances. When I was in my early 20s, I went back home to England and to Wales for the first time, came out as a child of seven, eight, seven and a half. And I thought, well, I'll go back there and I'd like to trace some of the history of the great revivals that occurred in Great Britain. You know John Wesley in the city of Bristol? That's where I lived for some time. John Wesley, the remarkable revival under Wesley. George Whitfield, a similar spot. And then go up through with the place of the martyrs through Oxford. Did all sorts of wonderful things, looking for the church and the, the vault of the church where they imprisoned Latimer and Ridley before they dragged them out and burnt them at the stake. Going up into Scotland into the days of the Covenanters and the Dragoons and Claverhouse, wretched, horrible Claverhouse the persecution of the people of God in that place, and so on and so on. 
And then I went down into Wales, which was where my mother was born. And you know, it was a remarkable experience. I, I met an old man and his wife who actually brought my mother up. And it was a typical Welsh scene. It was in the valleys, you know, the coal miners, where the great revivals occurred. I don't know if you've ever seen what it was like to coal mine in those days, but it's, it, it beggars belief, if I could put it that way, the conditions of hardship. And there I found this little cottage that I'd been looking for, and it was set in the hillside. You had to go across, leave the road, and go down across a field and down into a little dip and over a stream and up. And there's this old cottage sitting on the side of the hill, sort of made of bits of fibro stuck together, and I don't know what. And when you opened the door, it was incredible. There's the old, an old, there is the old lady on a rocking chair knitting in front of the big peat stove with the door open. You know, so Welsh. And the Welsh dresser was even there with the candlesticks and the china on, you know. Well, they welcomed me in. It was a wonderful time. They didn't know I was coming, didn't even know I existed. But we went in there, and the old man used to talk to me and talk to me. And, you know, I think we talked till two in the morning some mornings. He, he had this magic of the Welsh and the Celtic in him, you know, and he held me with his glittering eye, and I couldn't but listen. <laughs> and he told me one day of an experience that he had when he was working in the pits. He said, I had the job of um, lowering the people, the, the, the miners, in the lift down into the bottom of the pits. Now, we talk about a lift. It, it's just an iron cage where you stacked the men in, as many as you could get, slammed it shut, you know, locked it all up, and boosh, down she went. I tell you, I wouldn't have gotten that lift for anything. I mean, it's just terrible if you go and have a look. It's ghastly. I don't know how they did it. And he said that one time he, he lowered, it was in the days of the Welsh Revival, but he, the men got in, he said, and they were just men, just ordinary men. Yeah, that was all there was to it. He lowered them down in the, in the cage to the bottom of the pit, and when it hit the bottom, right, he got an urgent signal to pull them back up again. And he thought, oh, got a butt, got the machinery going, crank the big handle, the big wheel turn, up she comes. And he said that it came out into the daylight. He said there was all of these men in this cage and he said tears were streaming down their face. The black coal dust and then the white rivers of tears and every single one of them was crying out to, for, to God for mercy for they wanted to be saved. Now, what happened in between the two? Nobody said a word. There was no preacher, there was no Bible but the Spirit of God was at work. And what did he do? He convicted of sin. That is the point. That's why there were so many truly saved in those days. God was moving and God was at work. And the characteristic was there was mercy, there was sin, there was conviction, there was guilt, there was repentance, there was salvation. Now later on, I went across a bit further from the valleys towards a place called Llanetli. And then at that time I was actually driving a car and I had a, a swag in the back, we call it today, it was a tent. And I used to sort of get a bed and breakfast somewhere or pitch a tent. And I was just got through the little villages roundabout and the lanes and I got myself rather lost. And I couldn't find anywhere to stay. I couldn't find anywhere to put a tent. I couldn't find anywhere to go and get bed and breakfast. Then I found a place and I thought, oh, this will be good. And I, I got to the gate and it's one of those strange moments in your life where you just think, no, nah, this isn't right. So I turned around and got back in the car. By that time it was late and the twilight was sort of starting to wane and I drove off and promptly got myself lost in all the lanes and I thought, well, that's odd. Maybe I should go back to that place, but maybe I shouldn't. And So I stopped the car and I sort of swung in into a gateway and in the lane and the big high hedges that they have over there where you can't see anything hardly. And I just asked the Lord, well, what am I going to do? 
So I thought, well, I'll, I'll do a three-point turn, and I'll go back to Lethetli, and I must be able to, surely I could find somewhere there that's got a door open. And as I turned the car, hanging over the great high hedge was a sign. And you know what it said? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I thought, wow, what's behind that hedge? <laughs> so I haven't got through, got into the gate. Sure enough, there's a, a chapel, a Welsh chapel. And I thought, well, at least I could put my tent in the grounds of the old Welsh chapel and I'll be safe. It was raining by then, mind you. It wasn't very pleasant. So I thought, I'd better knock up somebody just to make sure they don't think I'm a trespasser or something. So I knocked up somebody up the street. I said, do you know anybody that is associated with that chapel down the road? Oh, yes, we know somebody from the Gospel Chapel. Indeed we do. The Jones ladies down in the village, right next to the Jews' agents, I've got a little house, and you go and ask them, you go put your tent in there. So way down I went to the village. Oh, they said in here, they have a brother. He has a, they have a brother, and he is the preacher in the chapel. So I thought, oh, this is even better. So I went down, knocked on the door, and this elderly lady came to the door. <coughs> And I just stood there and I said, look, my name's Paul. I'm from Australia. I'm travelling by. And I just wondered, would you mind if I put a tent in the grounds of that chapel up the road, which I understand you go to? Oh, my love, she said, don't you just come in and have some supper? And I went in and sitting there was the very man that was the preacher, the brother, who was actually the inspector of schools as well in the area. So he was no fool, right? And he had two sisters, lonely little ladies, all on their own, and this strange... <laughs> man breaking in from Australia and they said oh sit down sit down and they were having their supper what well, if you've ever been ever there and seen suppers I tell you what it's the fourth meal of the day and it's better than breakfast it's just loaded and so we sat down and um, we talked for a while and I explained myself and all the while he never said a thing the ladies were so excited to have an Australian visitor especially in a little village like that but he said nothing he just watched me <laughs> he was a shrewd man and after a little while he goes, oh, excuse me. And he got up and he got the visitor's book. Now, you don't see that much today, visitor's books, do you? But in our day, we always had a visitor book. That if you came to my house for lunch or dinner, you would sign the visitor's book like you do in some cafes. And you'd put a comment there, a verse of scripture or a witty little saying or a, something about a thank you. And I took this verse and actually I thought, as I got to this place and that old lady opened that door and I saw her face, a verse came to me. It was Genesis. Do you remember the servant going to seek a bride for Abraham's son Isaac and his things began to work out for him and he starts to explain to the father-in-law-to-be, Laban, he says to him, how did all this happen? How did you know? Well, he says, I being in the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. And I wrote that in the visitor's book. I being in the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. And he flung it on the table and says, Oh, Sonny says, that's enough. That's enough for me. Oh, come on up, he says, I'll do better. You can not just put your tent in the chapel. He says, you can take your sleeping bags in and you can sleep on the floor. And I said, well, my goodness me, that's going to be the first time you ever had a preacher on your platform in his pyjamas. But so, <laughs> so we all had a bit of a chuckle and we, we walked up the hill. We opened the door of the chapel. It was absolutely beautiful. It was a big Welsh Bible and written all across the top was Behold the Lamb of God that bears away the sin of the world. It was really lovely. And he says, let me tell you a story. And here's a story. He said, "Many." He said, see up the road, and it was way up on the hill. There's a huge church, a huge church. Beautiful old thing. He said, my father went there and I went with him as a little boy, as a lad. One Sunday morning, he said, we got up there for the church service 
And we're just sitting there waiting for it to start. He said, you know in those last few minutes when there's real quietness, real quietness, he said, and then suddenly somebody over by that one of the main pillars of the church, a voice was heard. Somebody stood up and said, I'm saved. God has mercy on me. I'm saved. And there was a bit of a stir. And he said, one by one, right across the whole congregation, the ripple went, one after another, calling out to God for mercy and saying, I'm saved, I'm saved. The preacher hadn't even got started. We're in the days of a Welsh revival. We're in the days when God, through his spirit, is moving in his own mysterious and powerful way, convicting of sin. Now, he said, we were so happy and so thrilled. We went back for the evening service. But when they got there, they found that those who weren't saved had bolted up the doors <laughs> so that those that were saved couldn't get in. So he said, we stood there for a while and talked, and then they all got together, and four abreast, they started to march and sing, only as the Welsh can sing, right? Only as they can sing, we're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upward to Zion, the beautiful city of God. Can you imagine watching that? <laughs> Newly saved by the grace of God, not 24 hours, singing the songs of Zion, four abreast, marching down the hill. And then he said, we got, he said, we got actually right here, this was a bare piece of land, and we held our first gospel meeting, an open air meeting. And he said, here is where we decided to build the chapel. What is it all about? God at work. The spirit of God at work. He's in the world to convict of sin. There will always be that. Without it, there will never be a new birth, never be a new nature, never be any change in our behaviour, never will there be a new life, never will there be any fruit. One of the greatest proofs that God has saved you and worked in your life is that you have learned to hate sin. Please. When we were recently down in Canberra, Somebody actually came to Martin and said, look, I've got such and such a habit, a filthy habit on the screen. I, he says, oh, it doesn't bother me, I've done it for years. I won't use the words, it's children, there's no point. Get the idea, you know what it is. You know what the sort of thing it is. And he said, should I be worried about that? And I remember Martin looked at him and said, you sure should be. Because you know why you should be worried? Because you're probably not saved. I will say this, on the last day that same fellow came up and did say, you know what, I think I've just got saved. You see, confronted with sin. Confronted with sin. If you could say, I'm going to continue in sin because grace will abound, I tell you, God forbid. God forbid. The greatest proof of sin forgiven, says Spurgeon, is the fact that sin has been forsaken. May the Lord part us with his blessing this morning. Let's pray. Father, this is a blessed time we've had together as we've come to remember the Lord Jesus. We've come to sing the praise of him who died, of him who died upon that cross, who rose again and is sitting at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. Our hearts have been thrilled as we've begun to look up and to trust again and to take courage and be fully armed to move forward in the fight of faith. Our God and Father, Give us that strength, we pray. Extend thy kingdom, that kingdom of God in this world. Lord, we know the promise. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. For this we worship and give our thanks together. 
and commit ourselves into thy good hand. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Ghost be our blessing as we move into the week. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.